0: In the fall of 1900, the city of Galveston, Texas, lost more than 6,000 of their citizens. Violent hurricane uh, had clobbered the unsuspecting people with wind and massive tidal waves. They almost didn't know what hit them. They'd never been through anything like that. And they didn't have the early warning systems that we have. So it was a very tragic event. But you know, there's another storm that rages with a different kind of devastation today. It's one we don't hear a lot about on the evening news, uh, yet it darkens the skies and pounds the inner lives of people all across the world. And even our children are being ravaged by it in unprecedented numbers. The storm is called depression. And it comes in waves, and it can beat us down. And as its floodwaters uh, drown us with despair, uh, it's a terrible thing to experience. And the numbers are staggering. The National Institute of Health estimates that worldwide 800,000 people die by suicide each year, which is roughly one death every 40 seconds. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the world for those aged 15 to 24. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Now, in, a, in, a <clears throat> in the physical realm, with a sense, we have satellites that can monitor what's going on in the atmosphere and give us warnings when storms and threatening waters are coming. But warnings and watches for the human soul are best provided by people who face similar emotional storms. And since the Bible is the owner's manual of the human heart, that's where we've got to turn. And we can draw wisdom and insight. There are three individuals, Moses and Elijah and Jonah, who each had a storm of depression just smack them full force. Whatever joy that they had was hidden by those oppressive clouds of worthlessness and guilt and fear. And all you could hear, and all they could hear, was the winds of despair. We're going to see what happened to them in the Bible today. Because to help us understand the devastating trial, there's three areas that we need to look at. And each of these individuals, we're going to take them one at a time, but we, don't want to, we want to evaluate them in three areas. We want to look at them emotionally well, physically first. How were they impacted? Emotionally, how were they impacted? And then spiritually, what were those kind of conditions that, that brought about the depression that swept over these men? And in doing so, I think we can shed some light on maybe our own battles with despair. Let's take a look at Moses. Moses, let's call him the dejected leader. The trip to the promised land had begun as quite an adventure, but it now deteriorated quickly into a nightmare for Moses. I mean, nothing seemed to satisfy the two million whiny children of Israel. Have you ever been on those trips with your family and you've got a little fuss budget in the back seat? Have you ever had that happen? Maybe some of you were the little fuss budget and you've grown up. Maybe you're still fussy. I don't know. But nothing satisfied the children of Israel. Day in and day out, their complaints and their criticisms assaulted their leader, Moses, until finally, you know, you reach that time as a parent where you want to pull over to the side of the road and just, what, beat their little buns, you know? That's where he was. The book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 10 reads, Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. And the Lord became exceedingly angry. Moses was troubled. Now, the last phrase can be translated, Moses was becoming depressed. And like an exasperated parent, he exploded, pouring out all of his frustration and despair to the Lord. Verse 11, he asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? <laughs> Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do, you, why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on earth to their forefathers? See what, see what he's doing, who he's pointing the finger at? He said, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. And in his words, you can hear the rumblings of depression storm. He said, enough is enough. Have you been there? I can't take it anymore. I'm I'm finished. I quit. I resign. In verse 15, he says, if this is how you're going to treat me, speaking to God, he says, just put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not not let me face my own ruin. Can can you hear the dejected tone of this man's heart? How in the world could somebody who had spoken with God and seen his miraculous power, you got to ask, how could he ever be depressed? But he was. And we need to find out because there's a progression of depression and it always goes through these three areas. Right? Now, as we're going through this, you're going to think whatever your our experience has been with this matter. Maybe you know someone and you've seen the suffering they've gone through when it comes to depression. Uh, maybe you've had these experiences yourself. But I want you to, to track with me because if you understand how this works in these three areas, you'll be able to find, I think, relief and encouragement through the valley that you're walking through, okay? First of all, the physical area. Physically, Moses had a leadership problem. He was trying to do all this work himself. He was, I mean, he was the man, you know. But as a result, what happened was he began to feel himself stretched so thin. It's like a rubber band. You pull it out far enough, eventually it's going to snap. And we know this, because, and we know Moses had a problem with this anyway. He'd been kind of used to carrying the leadership load alone. However, what he'd failed to do was to apply the principle to his current situation. He was just simply exhausted. No reserves of physical strength to fight off the depression. So the Lord said to Moses in verse 16 of our text, He said, You bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people, and you have them come to the tent of meeting." that they may stand there with you. And I will come down and will speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is on you and I will put the spirit on them. And they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. By the way, never, ever, ever think that God's not concerned about you when you're going through these valleys. It's easy to just be so self-focused that we begin to wonder, well, where is God when I'm really in this great time of need and frustration? But he's right there. But that's not all. It wasn't just giving him the physical help, because Moses was also struggling emotionally. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, he suffered from feelings of inferiority. And verse 14 makes it clear. He did not feel equal to this task. It was beyond him. He tried to shoulder the weight of the people's burdens, and it was just frustrating. him. And it only exceeded or succeeded in crushing the emotional life out of him. He had taken all their problems on himself instead of letting them take responsibility for their own lives. And as a result, he suffered physically, emotionally, but more important, he was suffering spiritually You know what happens? You know how you feel a little apart from God, a little distant from him? Like you wonder where he is, what's going on? You wonder, Lord, what have you got against me? I mean, Moses had become consumed by his work rather than consumed by his God. And the Lord's recommended solution to this was quite simple. He said, you know, you've got to back off, you've got to slow down, you've got to delegate. You're doing enough for 70 people. And through this understanding a little bit and a simple plan that God gave him, Moses would be able to rekindle the flame of his relationship with God first and then regain the perspective that he's going to need to lead these people to the promised land and to help them mature in the process. All right, that's Moses. Then there comes Elijah. Now, Elijah was the fearful prophet. And the climate that led to Elijah's depression was, meteorologically speaking, I guess, pretty bad. I mean, for the previous three years, the sun had blistered the land. A horrendous drought that God had sent as punishment for the wickedness of a king named Ahab and his even more wicked wife, Jezebel. Jezebel had led the nation into worshiping the pagan god Baal, And 70 faithful prophets to the Lord our God had been executed by Jezebel and replaced by her own prophets. In fact, there were 450 false prophets of the demon god Baal. So 1 Kings chapter 18 describes this dramatic confrontation between God's prophet Elijah and those 450 false prophets of Baal. And the challenge was for each side to build an altar. You remember this if you've read through the Old Testament passage here. They had to build an altar and put it, get everything ready, but they were to build no fire. Instead, the prophets would pray, and the God who answered by fire would be shown to be the legitimate God. So the prophets of Baal started first. They built an altar and they placed their animal on and all this. They prayed, according to the Bible, they prayed for, to God, their God, from morning until noon. Nothing happened. Then Elijah built an altar and he prepared the wood and the sacrifice. But then he went a step further. He dug a trench all the way around the altar and then drenched the whole thing with water. And then he prayed. So much water, by the way, that it was running down in a ditch. He dug a ditch around it. You could have water, the whole thing was just saturated. And in an awesome demonstration of power, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of, of Moses, and the God of Elijah, he sent fire from above that consumed not only the sacrifice, but the wood and the stone and the dirt around it, and evaporated all the water that was in the trenches. And 1 Kings 18.39 says, Don't you know, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate on the ground and cried, Lo, Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah, along with all the people, they put to death all those false prophets. And when the queen Wicked Jezebel heard that her prophets were no more. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings nineteen two, she sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Talking about her dead prophets. And Elijah, now, now watch this. Elijah, this powerful prophet of God, became Elijah the fearful prophet, and he's a fugitive, and verse 3 says, he was afraid and ran for his life, came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Have you ever had that mountaintop experience in your life, and wow, you suddenly connect with God in a special way, and everything is just awesome, and you can't imagine it. You can't imagine not feeling that exuberance and the faith was strong. And then something happens and it just pulls the rug right out from underneath you. He'd gone from being this awesome, having this mountaintop experience, to trembling under a, a bush. And again, there's this threefold evaluation that has to be done. First, the physical part, physically, like Moses, Elijah was exhausted. He'd just been through three years of famine, faced and slain 450 false prophets of Baal in an intense, long-day confrontation. I imagine he missed a few meals along the way while all this is going on, lots of sleep perhaps. And he's been in intense prayer. He's traveled up and down Mount Carmel twice, receiving death threats. He's fled for his life to Beersheba, traveled another day's journey into the wilderness. He's whooped. He's wore out. Emotionally, he also suffered from what is called a martyr's complex. These are those feelings of self-pity that reflect uh, his focus on himself. You know, he's, can you imagine? Listen, listen to this self-focused prayer in verse 10. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I mean, can, can you hear that? I'm all alone. Everybody's abandoned me, nobody else around. I'm the only one stand, I'm the only one standing true, Lord, to your cause. And he couldn't see past that fog of his own self-absorption, preoccupied with it. It's easy to do. Some of us have been there but his spiritual condition which is always the most important by the way his spiritual condition can see can be seen from his response to Jezebel's death threat the bible says he said he was afraid i mean up to that point through all these events he kept his eyes on the lord but now his eyes were only on his enemy and his knees were knocking. But God began restoring this wore out prophet. He sent him some food to start with. And as with Moses, he gave, it's interesting, he gave no rebuke. He didn't get on his case for experiencing the discouragement. There was no long, preachy sermon with 17 points. All he basically said was, you need a good meal, just eat first, Elijah. And then in verses 11 through 13, he began to be the one that revitalized Elijah's emotions and his spiritual strength through step-by-step doses. First, he dramatically revealed himself. You know, every time you get into God's word, every time you ask for him to speak to you, if you're in the scripture, that's what he's doing. It's amazing how many times you'll be led to verses that you need so very much in that moment because God knows what you need before you do. God revealed himself, he dramatically revealed himself, he helped Elijah get his focus, and then he reminded him, by the way, you're not alone, verse 18 says, he said, there are still 7,000 others who had not bowed down to worship Baal. And then finally, he gave him a good friend who was named Elisha, and Elisha came and was kind of like a little sidekick to Elijah for a good while after that. All right, that's the first two. Then we come to Jonah. Now, Jonah was the reluctant preacher. And strangely enough, the event that led to Jonah's depression was the repentance of the entire city of Nineveh. And uh, you need to have the backstory to really understand what's happened here. The book of Jonah opens up with these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you've grown up in Sunday school or church, then you know what happened. His disobedience resulted in him ending up being thrown into the sea by a bunch of scared sailors who were blaming him for their troubles. And he was swallowed by a great fish. And as one might expect, this kind of trauma moved Jonah to repent and to pray like crazy. Jonah 10 verse 2 says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And this is interesting. This time when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 3 of chapter 3, says Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Don't you know? I mean, if you had an experience like that, you'd kind of say, okay, we don't want to do this again. You know, he, he, he wants thou to obey. He's ready to go. He preached the greatest citywide revival ever really recorded in the Bible. And from the king... To the peasant, the entire city of Nineveh repented and called on the name of the Lord. But listen to Jonah's response because it's so revealing. Verse four, uh, Jonah chapter four, verse one. But Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. Now you got to understand this Physical reaction to this confusing reaction, and again, we look at the three factors. Physically, first of all, I mean, I think what he's been through up to this point. Only a few days earlier, he'd been thrown into the sea. He spent three days in the stomach of a great fish, and that's pretty. That would probably do me in, I think, right there. And um, and then not only that, but he's been coughed up on dry land in a smelly uh, beginning to his preaching ministry at Nineveh. And then once there, what did he have to do? He had to travel through the heathen city, crying out the message of repentance to all the people he, he did not know and whom he did not like. Now, why is that? Well, for two reasons. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and it was one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and adulterous empires in the world in that time. And number two, John was unhappy because God... Was so gracious. I mean, he would rather die than see the grace of God extended to these Gentiles. After all, he believed those, that grace was only for his people. And so he prayed to the Lord. And this is then we get into this emotional thing here. He prayed to the Lord Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But now, O Lord, just take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. This bitterness in his own soul was being fed and nurtured by, honestly, it was an attitude of superiority. You see, the spiritual problem he had was he really didn't care whether these wicked people were saved or not. In fact, he didn't particularly want them to repent and be spared God's judgment. So he's put out with God. He's unhappy because his agenda didn't match God's. His relationship as a result with the Lord was being blocked by his resentment. And so God asked him a question which helped kind of break Jonah and help him rethink his lousy, judgmental attitude. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? I mean, instead of answering, Jonah went and built himself a, a shelter outside of the city to wait and see what would happen to the city. I mean, eventually, after he begged to let him die, the Lord said, He explained his rationale that he had that Jonah didn't have. Jonah 4.11 says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Now, as we've witnessed the depression of these three men, what I want us to do is, do you recognize any flags of of, uh, motion and discouragement? Do you see yourself in Moses? Are you overworked this morning? Had a hard week, trying to do a lot of stuff yourself? Are you feeling kind of inferior? Are you constantly kind of feeling guilty over things you can't control? Are you and God kind of feeling far apart? Or are you more like Elijah, caught up in the martyr complex and the eyes of your heart having lost their focus on God? Or maybe you see yourself in Jonah, Kind of superior, kind of smug, you know, and downright mad at God beating others with the whip of your judgmental attitude. Is exhaustion the only one who greets you at the door when you come in? Are you at the end of your rope? If so, then I want you to consider these five important decisions as we close this morning. Whatever your situation, here are five important decisions that will provide you and me with the protection from the full force of this enemy called depression. Decision number one, you realize that depression is not a sin, it's a symptom. Depression is not a sin, but it is a symptom. Depression is like the flashing warning light on the dashboard of your car. I drove a car for years. With well, this thing oh, it kept telling me, check engine, check engine. Have you ever done that? I even got out many times, looked under the hood. I checked the engine. It was still there. But you just ignored it. And then one day, the silly thing wouldn't start. And then you had to go through the reality. Well, wait a minute. There were some things that needed to be done here that I had not taken care of. maintenance issue. See, the way to deal with this issue of depression is not by putting a piece of tape over the light so you don't have to watch it flash at you. That's not the way. It's by lifting the hood, finding the problem, you and God getting alone together and saying, you know, what's going on here? And when depression sets in, something deeper is wrong. You look for the root causes. That's number one. Depression is not a sin, but it is a symptom that something else is not in order. Number two. Number two. Maintain a constant program of relaxation. Isn't that an odd thing to say? I mean, one of the things we see that all these men are doing, they're exhausted. Leisure is becoming a lost art, I think, to most of us because we're we're just so busy. A lot of people, they work real hard at the altar of their careers. But the people who've mastered the art of building into their lives places of leisure and relaxation, then they usually experience fewer problems with depression. I go through regular intervals when I have to go to the woods. And when I get to the woods, the reason I go there is because I like to go there and pray. I like to be in God's country. I like to see the the the, 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 the scenery. But I find those refreshing and relaxing for me. What, what do you do? What is your way of, of coping with things when things get really messed up in your life? or Or just... Just you're tired. This is not exactly a culture we live in that encourages us to to rest much. Everything's just so fast. We're going to be talking about anger uh, in a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, the question that we're going to ask ourselves is, why does everybody seem so angry today? Have you sensed it? I mean, if you've been on the Internet, I'm sure you have. If you watch the news, they really seem to put the camera on all the the, uh, upset. But for Christians, you know, we've got to realize that we've got to be careful. A lot of people are watching you. A lot of people are watching me. There is a sense with which there is a need for us to kind of have our act together. So in the midst of storms, we can be a source of, of calm and encouragement. Not because we're so great, but because God can channel through us the peace of God that passes all understanding, as the Bible puts it, because so many people need that so very, very much. Number three, guard against those subtle complexes. We've we've been talking about these in this series. To keep from falling into inferiority or superiority or the martyr complex, You and I need to keep our eyes aligned and vertical on Jesus. And we need deeper friendships and relationships so people will be there to help us and lift us out of the dark places we fall into sometimes. I mean, who who are those people in your life? And if you don't have those there, then you need to ask God to help you. God brought an encourager to Elijah. He'll bring encouragers to you and to me. Then number four, remember God is for you, not against you. One of the greatest verses in all the New Testament is Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's not God's design to make our lives miserable, but rather make our lives meaningful. And he will encourage you. He really will. Just be very careful to to remember that. And then number five, never, ever forget the Satan can also bring depression. One of the sharpest darts of the enemy. But there's good news which I close with. 1 John 4.4. The one who is greater, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Perhaps this morning you heard what you needed to hear. And I encourage you now to then move upon it, act upon it. What we know from the Bible and the head knowledge we have is not nearly so important. It's what is applied to our hearts. And when we let the Spirit of God just turn him loose within us, using the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God, then you and I will find ourselves in a tremendously good position to deal with a lot of these kinds of things these emotional things, these physical things that drag so many people down. Many Christians have been cut off at the knees because of the very things we've talked about here. We saw some of those today, powerful leaders in and of themselves, in a sense. They were taken to their knees by depression. So, Father, as we pray today, I want to ask you if you would just just nudge us, help us not be too prideful, help us not be arrogant, help us not assume that this is for somebody else. Help us, Lord, to look carefully at our lives, And pray that we ask that you, Lord, will clarify, give us wisdom, give us a self-awareness that we can recognize that most of the time we are the author of all of our disasters. And Lord, forgive us when we just try to brush it off as if it doesn't matter. Oh, Lord, remind us that we are to be living, walking testimonies for not only your grace, but also your love. Your power, all the things that we lack, you supply to us through Jesus Christ and his spirit that lives within us. And for those that are struggling right now with discouraging thoughts, depressing uh, attitudes, and, and all the things we've talked about, Lord, just, just help us know that you know, we have a source of strength. For greater is he that is in us, Lord, than he that's in this world. Let us go forth with that truth upon our heart and upon our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.